Let us prepare to hear God's word by praying together words from Psalm 119. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Please join me. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the ways of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Hear the word of God from Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 31. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over to Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children, and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with, your, with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, would you please join with me in prayer?
Father, um, whenever we hear your word, we, we don't want to treat it uh, simply as um, letters written on a page or as some uh, human creation. For we know that, that both this word that we just heard was inspired by you, but also you continue to speak in a living fashion through your word, even as we hear it. And so now, Father, as we work to listen, as we work to reflect on it, we pray that we would hear you, that you would shape us, that you would enable us to see you more clearly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you were little, uh, did you ever try to imagine what God might look like? I don't know if I ever consciously did it, but as I look back, I can think that there are certain times, um, I think probably especially when we were at church and the prayers would go really long, that, that as my eyes were shut, because, you know, that's what I was supposed to do, my brain would start kind of like trying to picture who it was I was speaking to. I wonder if you had a similar experience. For me, as I think about it, it's hard to describe. There's kind of a goldenness, a shimmeriness, kind of almost like a staticky picture and, and there was someone who was kind of bright and in white, but also his face was covered um, almost like he was a mummy. Like, I, I, it didn't make sense, but it was just like that, that was kind of what my brain thought of. And, and I wonder how many of us have an experience like that, that as we're young, we, we have some sort of mental picture of God. I, I think when we do that, it, that's kind of one of the earliest expressions we have of, of curiosity, of, of wanting to know God. Because we do, don't we? I mean, it's interesting to me that throughout the world there has never existed, to my knowledge, a fully atheistic culture. Everywhere there is something that seems to be human that is within us who wants to know who God is. What is He like? How can we know? There are so many different understandings of God. How do we know that what we know is truly who God is? Last week, we uh, began exploring a rather extraordinary claim that our passage, Deuteronomy 4, tells us. And that is that the actual God of the universe, the eternal one, the creator, actually drew near to a very specific people appearing before them at the top of a mountain in, in fire and smoke and lightning. And he spoke and he said, this is who I am. I am the Lord your God. And this morning, I want to actually just continue to reflect, as Moses is doing. Moses, throughout chapter 4, is kind of reflecting upon that reality and what it means. And I want us to consider one thing that Moses draws our attention to in the passage that was just read. Verse 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When Moses is saying this, he's not just making this up. He's specifically quoting God when he speaks from Mount Sinai, when he gives the Ten Commandments, he says specifically, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
And in fact, Moses goes on in the next verse talking about warning them, saying, do not provoke the Lord your God to anger. So what we have here is, is we're asking, who is the true God? And the true God says, here is who I am. I am a God who is jealous. He is a God who can be provoked to anger. And I wonder if we just kind of hear that, whether we feel that a bit jarring a bit out of alignment with how we think of God. If we do, then that means, especially in moments like this, we should spend time considering this and thinking about this so that we can actually know who the true God is. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to consider what this means, what it means that God is jealous. And then secondly, I want us to consider what it means for us. Like, What are the implications? How should we live? And finally, briefly, at the end, I want us to understand why the fact that God is jealous is actually really good news. So first, what does it mean that God is jealous? Well, I, I want to start by just kind of recognizing that anytime we say something about God, it's a tricky thing. That anytime we speak, seek to speak about God, we inevitably have to speak using analogies. What do I mean by that? So anytime I'm trying to, or any of us try to explain something that's unfamiliar to someone else, how do we do it? Like if I said to you, do you guys know what a splitzel is? I'm making this word up. Do you know what a splitzel is? And of course you'd say, I have no clue. What would I do then? I would try to say, well, it's like this, or it's like that, except it's a little bit different. What I do is I appeal to things that you're familiar with to help you to understand something that you're unfamiliar with. That's that's how we almost think of anything. That's how we can come to understand new things. We compare it to our previous experiences. But here's the problem. God is not like anyone or anything else we've experienced. Right? Everything that we know has been made, has been created. It, it, it has a beginning. It has an ending. It's finite. It's changeable. God is eternal. He has always been. God is unchanging. He is omnipotent without any limitation. There is nothing we know that is like God. Which means there's always going to be a limitation when we're trying to speak of God because there's an element about God that will always transcend our ability to understand. God does speak to us about himself. He does reveal us, as we've just been saying. But whenever he reveals it, there's always an element that we know that these words have, have a limitation. So he'll say, I am your shepherd, except we also know he's not, right? He's not, he's not literally someone who, who moves sheep around. And Isaiah, it says, I bear my holy arm, except we also know he doesn't have an arm. He's speaking to us in analogies where there's always some truth, where we can know something about God, but there's always some mystery where we realize there's an aspect of this that goes beyond our ability to comprehend. And I want to say that when we are speaking, when God speaks of himself as jealous, we need to understand it works the same way. He is jealous, and yet he is not in the way that we think of. He's not, he's not someone who flies off the handle in rage, being just affected by something and out of control. He's not someone who, who seethes with bitterness and goes, I wish I could be that person. Those are things of jealousy that we associate, that we know are clearly unhealthy. No, what, but what God is saying is, there, there is something about who I am that resembles the healthy version of jealousy. Which might even sound strange to us. Like, how in the world can there be a healthy version of jealousy? 
Well, let's, let's, let's try to use another analogy here. Oftentimes, Scripture will speak, because marriage is this covenant relationship of mutual love, it is often used as an analog of the relationship between God and us. So let's use, let's use a couple examples from the idea of, of marriage to understand this. Let's, let's talk about just two hypothetical couples. We'll, we'll first talk about Jack and Diane. Um, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you're in my age, you know that there's an illusion there. Um, so, so Jack, imagine Jack is an accountant in his 30s, and he has done well with work. He's a faithful worker. He's responsible. But he's also a bit socially awkward. He's never someone who's the life of the party. In fact, he generally tries not to go to parties. He has not been on a date for a while, but in his workplace, he's gotten to know Diane, and Diane, for some reason, seems interested in him, and he's just so flattered by that, and eventually, he works up the nerve and asks her out, and they start dating, and it goes well, and they're dating for a long period of time, and finally, they become married. And, and it seems to start well, but over time, it starts, Jack can't put his finger on it, but, but there's a sense that he's always in the boundary and the border of making Diane unhappy. So she doesn't like the way he has his habits. She tells him when he needs to change, and he sought to change that. She doesn't like his friends, so he sought to change his friends. He sought to change his hobbies. She doesn't like the way the house is. She wants to invest and make it much better, and that means he has to work a lot more shifts or see a lot more clients to be able to make the income to do that. But he does that, and part of the reason is because whenever he does what diane asks she seems to be generally okay with him but whenever he starts speaking in disagreement immediately there's anger immediately there's coldness immediately there's distance as if as if he's being punished for even having a voice and so more and more he feels like his entire relationship is just about trying to please her so let me ask what should jack do in that situation Let's try another couple. We'll call them Joe and Dolores. So imagine Dolores is someone who has grown up in a, a, a difficult family background. She, after graduating from high school, she immediately had to start working as a waitress to be able to support her ailing mom. And she's been in that job for years now. She's in her mid-20s, and she, gets, she meets this new regular, Joe, who, who's flirting with her from the outset. And... It seems obviously attracted to her. And he is someone who is charismatic, who is confident, who knows what he wants, and it's clear that he wants her. And, and he sweeps her off her feet. She, he is obviously besotted with her. They, they go on dates. She, he constantly buys her stuff. She feels like she's being treated like a princess, and, and they get married. And soon after getting married, Dolores realizes that there's another side of Joe that he can get pretty angry, and so she has to be really careful. And, and more than that, because he is constantly complimenting her on the way that she looks, she feels almost this pressure to look a certain way. She's afraid what would happen if she lost a few pounds. And, and she also feels like there is almost this, this person that Joe is imagining her to be that she has to keep pretending to be, to be able to kind of fit within his graces. And it becomes more and more a sense that she is acting to be someone she isn't. And meanwhile, she's beginning to wonder if Joe is cheating on her. What should Dolores do in that situation? I, I think when we think of these two stories, of Jack the accountant, of, of Dolores, I think we would probably agree that the healthy thing for both of them is not 
to just continue to be nice. It's not to just continue for them to try to please their spouse and be okay because this isn't a healthy relationship, right? A healthy marriage is supposed to be a relationship between two human beings that see each other as human beings. But in both of these stories, what's actually happening is is they're being treated like objects. They're being treated as kind of what what the other people want from them. They they are not given any sense of inner subjectivity. There is no sense of who they are. They don't have a voice. They're being objectified. In, In this context... If I've described them rightly, obviously there's always two, star, two sides to every story, but in this context, let's assume I'm describing them rightly. The thing that needs to happen for them is they need to get angry. They need to say, this isn't the way a relationship should be. In fact, the loving thing for them to do is to not settle and accept things the way they are. Because if they really want this to be the right kind of relationship, they have to say, no, I will not be treated like an object. I am jealous to be treated the right way because that's what love, that's what marriage looks like. That is where jealousy can be healthy. A passion for a loving relationship to be the way that it was meant to be and a refusal to be treated like an object. Now, in many ways, God doesn't fit this analogy, right? Um, God is never going to be insecure and allow himself to be a doormat like like either of the people I've talked about kind of are and and what's more the relationship that God has with his people is never one of symmetry it's not like God and his people are equals God is God his people are creatures and though there's love they're not in the same plane but but this idea of jealousy that we've just articulated this refusal to be treated like an object that is what God is saying I am God. I I desire a relationship with you. But the relationship we have must see me rightly. You must know me and not some, some objectified, some shrunken, some limited view of me. You need to hear my voice and know me. I am jealous for that. And I will not tolerate anything less than that. That's that's what God is saying when he says, I am a jealous God. So if that's what it means, what does it mean for us? What, what does it mean in terms of how we are supposed to respond? And, and in some ways, the application, the implication is obvious. God is saying, do not ever think of me in an object. Uh, don't objectify me. Don't limit me. Don't treat me as an object. Know me who I truly am. That, that's where our passage begins. After Moses reminds them of what happened on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, the same place, he says in verse 15, therefore watch yourselves very carefully. This is that language of keep that we saw last week. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly, or you could just translate that self-destructively, by making a carved image for yourselves. That is a carved image about me, that you make a carved image to worship me. Which might seem like a strange thing to warn against, but you need to remember that in that day, that is what surrounded Israel, both the place they came from in Egypt and the place they were going to in Mesopotamia. 
you'll see that there's this long list of, of what they could make the carved images of male and female and then this litany of different creatures from kind of great to lesser in some ways. And this is what would happen. The Mesopotamians oftentimes would depict their gods in, in human form and mighty men or beautiful women. Egyptians would oftentimes more use animals like bulls or vultures or, or snakes. You would have these images sometimes in large form in temples that people could visit, but people would also oftentimes have smaller depictions, maybe little idols or drawings in their house. And we shouldn't assume that people that day were just, that day were just really naive and stupid. They, they understood that their God wasn't an animal or that their God wasn't a human being. Rather, what they were doing was they were trying to depict some aspect of the God as they imagined him to be. When, when it's a beautiful woman, it's reminding them that their God is beautiful. When it's powerful like a bull, that's how they're thinking of their God. These were meant to symbolize something more significant. And also, we shouldn't assume that they think that somehow the God resides in this small little statue. No, they, they saw these statues in some ways as, as connection points. So if they had one that was in their home that... Their hope was in some ways that when the God would see this depiction of him, he would keep his attention in this place. Oftentimes, people would, would actually bathe these statues or bring food before them or dress them as, as a way of expressing devotion so that the true God that they thought they were worshiping would be pleased. But having said that, we can just imagine what effect this way of treating their gods would, would have on them. They get to depict God exactly as they think he is, forming him. He is a God, or she is a God, or it is a God without any voice. And it is a God that they get to do what they want with. They can decide how to treat it, how to care for it, all of these things. More and more, what happens is these gods are objectified. They just projections. They, they are what make the worshipers feel comfortable and safe, they are manipulable, and they are not the real thing. And God's saying, you, you must not treat me in this way. And that warning is not just for no reason. That warning, we, just can, we only need to think of what happened. If you're familiar with Israel's story, you might know how Less than six weeks after God appears on the mountain, the way he doesn't speak to the people, and then he's having a conversation with Moses for many weeks, the people are feeling nervous and alone while Moses is away speaking to God, and they're feeling a need for a connection to God. But he seems far from them. So what do they do? They, they, they talk to Aaron, their priest, and they say, we will give all sorts of riches, all of the gold that we've taken from Egypt, we'll give to you if you could just make a beautiful statue that can represent for us God. And so Aaron makes this beautiful cow representing power, representing life, representing beauty. And, and what do they do? They, they offer sacrifices to it. They bow before it. They celebrate it. There is adoration. There is devotion. There is worship. There is objectification. Because this isn't a God that speaks. This is the God that makes sense to them. This is wish-casting. They now have something that they can manage, that they can kind of have on their own terms, and God says, how dare you? It is abhorrent to God. That is not me. 
God says, and I am jealous that you know me and not some version of me that you would like me to be. So what does that have to do with us? I mean, I, I'm fairly confident that we are not as session planning this year to make sure that we protect our congregation from making a cow. Like, it's not a danger for us, right? And we are not surrounded by all sorts of different, like, small little idols. And yet the reality is, we are, that there is an objectification of, of God, of, of how we view God, that, that absolutely surrounds us. So there is this book, uh, I think I've mentioned before, by Tara Isabella Burton called Strange Rights, where she is in some ways trying to chart the landscape, the modern religious landscape. And what she argues, I think convincingly, is that though we could also speak of this as a secular age, it is truly also a highly spiritual age. It's just you need to know how to look. She speaks of this. She says, wellness culture with its implicit belief in a mysterious energy that runs through us all, has become a $4.2 trillion industry, half the size of the global healthcare market. Eclectic spiritual and magical practices, from astrology to tarot to yoga to crystals to sage cleansing to meditation, are now integral parts of millennial culture. Urban Outfitters sells spell books. I mean, have you seen this? Have you begun to, to notice there's, there's in some ways this curiosity, this interest in, I mean, we're in a culture that says follow the science, and yet we also aren't. There is this desire for something more. But what's different, she says, is that we have become an age that we like to pick and choose. Like, we're in a time, right, where, where the internet gets to personalize everything for us. We have a perfectly curated timeline in social media. We get to decide everything. Everything is bespoke. And she says, and so we've made our religion a bespoke religion. She calls this era the, the remixed religion, where it's kind of like we have this spiritual buffet, where we say, I'd like a little bit of that practice, and a little bit of this practice, and oh, that sounds good too, and let's combine it, and that's, that's who I am. So we can say that we're Christian, but we can also want to kind of invest in some Zen Buddhism and also perhaps hold out hope for reincarnation and, and desire to speak to a dead loved one through a medium, and we just all put it together. That's religion remixed. And she says, for the remixed spiritualists, this new religious landscape heralds an era of untrammeled self-expression, of spirituality conceived first and foremost as an instrument of self-betterment, a necessary and easily consumable product designed to optimize one's life. We do not live in a godless world, rather we live in a profoundly anti-institutional one, where the proliferation of internet creative culture and consumer capitalism have rendered us all simultaneously parishioner, high priest, and even deity. Do you see it? Do you see what she is saying? What we're saying is that in our day of bespoke spirituality, there are millions of little calves in each household for each person. Millions of different versions of this is the God that I feel safe with. 
This is the God that makes sense to me. This is the God that fits the inner person of who I am. They are nothing more than projections. And the tragedy is that as long as this is the way, these people will never know the real, living, wild, unpredictable God. And we shouldn't think that we are immune to that danger. I mean, one of the strange things about, about modern American Christianity is we get to pick and choose already so much. I mean, there's different churches. You get to choose already what church best fits you. That's just the way things are right now. And oftentimes, if we're honest, when we think about the parts of the Bible we'll read, we'll choose the parts of the Bible that we feel are most encouraging and, and heart-strengthening to us. How much more will it take before we just start noticing the things about God that we feel better about, that we feel comfortable with, and we ignore the aspects of God or His Scripture that we really don't want to have to think about, and we make God and more, more and more into someone that we understand, someone that fits, someone that makes sense. And the moment that happens, we have stopped knowing God. Augustine said, If you comprehend, it is not God you comprehend. Because what does God say? God says, I am am no object. I have spoken from fire. Moses, when he says, you must not worship in this way, he says, and here's why. Because God did not appear to you in a form. He appeared to you in darkness. He appeared to you in fire. And what is fire but the anti-form? There is no form. God spoke to you in word, saying, this is who I am. He is a God that can be known because he reveals himself to us in his word, but he is a God that can never be comprehended. Every every conception we have of God always must involve mystery because every word we say about God is always limited. God says, call me father. We're supposed to relate to him as father, and yet, as we see here, he is not male. He is not female. He is beyond that. God speaks of himself as the living God, and yet he is not alive in the way of any creature where he began life and ends. He's living in a different way. God is the one who says, I am the one who loves. But, but love from God transcends any conception we have of love. He is a God who is beyond us. Hilary of Poitiers, who is another Christian theologian at the time of Augustine, put it this way, the perfection of learning is to know God in such a way that though you realize he is not unknowable, yet you know him as indescribable. God says, I am beyond, and you must not limit me. You must not frame me in certain ways, whether in images or in some kind of limiting way. You must listen to me and know the true me. I am a jealous God. And I refuse to be objectified. And if we think we're talking only about the Old Testament here, we should, we should consider 
this. We, we've said in the last few weeks, as we're thinking about this idea of God speaking, we keep on coming back to the point that as extraordinary and amazing as Mount Sinai was, it is actually not the most extraordinary moment of God speaking. That that happens in the New Testament when, when God speaks to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And if we think about, about how God speaks, we see this same duality. Because on one hand, in Jesus, we see the glory of God hidden. It says that Jesus, though he was in the very form of God, emptied himself. There's a way that when he entered into humanity, he, all of the, the glory and greatness of God was, was, was veiled before our eyes. And yet in another way, Jesus is God saying, this is who I am. If you want to know me, look at Jesus. This is me. Listen to him hear him, and through him, you will know me. And what does Jesus say? He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There might be all sorts of devotions, all sorts of different people who are willing to give their lives, seeking to worship God as they see him, but if it's not through me, it is not real because I am the one where God speaks. God is saying, this is me. If you want to know the real me and not projection, here I am in Jesus. Everything else is wish casting. And so what do we do? The call is for us to hear, to allow God be the one who tells us, this is who I am. So let me just conclude with one final thing. I, I said that, that if we understand it rightly, we will recognize that God being a jealous God who refuses to be viewed in any other way is actually good news for us. And here is why. I want you just to imagine for a moment what the alternative would be. What would it mean if we had a God who, who wasn't like this, who was not passionate for this relationship to be the way that it should be? Imagine instead if we had a God who was just like, okay, fine. If you want to think that you know me, but just kind of do your own thing and actually never get to know me and never experience the joy of worshiping, I mean, on one hand, we could say that would be an appropriate thing for God to just hand people over to that, but it would not be nice. It would be judgment. It would be handing over people to their darkness rather than them coming to know what they've always been meant to know, and that is the true God. But that's not actually what we see I mean, verse 20 is perhaps when we start noticing that there's something else going on. Verse 20, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. What is that God is saying? I chose you. I want you. Jealousy is not just about anger. We, we think about anger in terms of when there is dishealth, when there is something wrong that needs to be righted. But what is jealousy ultimately? It is about a loving commitment that is willing to withstand even things that stand in the way. And that also is what we see as we conclude our passage. Verse 29, 
after God envisions, when you have turned away from me and you are scattered throughout the lands, and then something will happen, verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and hear his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Do you hear what God is saying? I'm in this for the long haul. What he's saying is I am committed. I am committed to seeing this relationship made right. That also is part of what jealousy is. It is a loving commitment that refuses to be thwarted. And we see that most clearly at the cross. That is only where we really understand just where, how, how deep and powerful God's jealousy is. On one hand, if you think, oh, what is the cross? But the cross is the world seeking to silence God. Jesus is the speech of God, and the world says, be quiet, and seeks to end it. And yet what happens? That is not the moment that God says, I am done with you. That is a moment instead where God says, I am done with sin. I am done with evil. I have dealt with your guilt, and now there is a way for you. First Peter says, Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is how deeply passionate God is for the relationship that we are meant to have with him. He gives everything for it. Do you understand what it means that you have a God who is jealous for you? That he is unimaginably committed to you knowing him, experiencing his love, and enjoying him for all eternity. That is good news. And what it simply calls us to do is to receive it, is to come with an attitude of quietness of heart and say, speak, Lord, I want to hear you. Speak, Lord, and show yourself to me that I might know the true and living God.